I've definitely picked up plenty of people looking at me with raised eyebrows and, you know, pursed lips indicating that, you know, don't, don't stop digging at the story. You know, you should see my desk at work. It's just piled high with papers of all sorts and, and you can barely see my keyboard. And, and that's, um, I would say it pushes the needle towards the foul play explanation. Welcome back to another episode of The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is the podcast where I talk to movers and shakers in Russia-focused journalism, activism, academia, you name it. A lot of these interviews are what I'd call a slow burn, where I find out how different folks in the field came to do what they do, why they've gone the route they have, and what they think about the state of things now, that sort of thing. Today's show is a bit different. On today's show, I spoke to one of the co-authors of an exclusive investigative report published earlier today by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. The exclusive report is based on a 149-page file released exclusively to RFERL that offers what is described as the most precise scientific description to date about how Mikhail Lesson, the former Russian press minister, turned up dead in a Washington, D.C. hotel room in November 2015. Definitely years in the making and definitely kind of a slog to go through the FOIA process and and the, and the lawsuit. That's RFRL's Mike Eckel. He co-authored the story with Carl Schreck, who was a guest on The Russia Guy last August. Mike is referring to the Freedom of Information Act lawsuit filed almost two years ago against the Washington, D.C. City's medical examiner. Before we get into the interview, it's worth remembering that Mike works for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, a U.S. government-funded media organization that sometimes characterized as a state propaganda network similar to Russia today. And here's RFRL suing branches of the U.S. government, demanding access to information that's been hidden from the public. When was the last time RT took a wing of the Russian government to court, let alone to expose what could very well be a murder cover-up? I'm not aware of any precedents, and the idea itself is pretty ridiculous given how RT operates and reports the news. So that's just food for thought. We were never 100% sure that we would get what we were looking for, at least until last month when the judge told the city to cough up the documents and told the city, you know, what the hell, why are you withholding all this material? You can release most, if not all of it. And so do you feel satisfied? Do you feel like you got what you wanted? Well, yes and no. I mean, it's satisfying to win a FOIA case of this sort, um, you know, FOIA being this, as plenty of people know, just this incredible bureaucratic Byzantine process that more often than not yields only frustration. Is that something that you had to do yourself or does RFRL have lawyers that can do that for you? So the original FOIA process way back was started by myself and and my co-author Carl Schreck. And we had targeted a couple different places, a couple different agencies federal agencies, and then the target of the city only came up later. I can't remember exactly when, but it was sometime around in the period when before the final report was released by the city and by the the federal attorney for the district. So once the legal process got underway, we, you know, we enlisted the help of lawyers to obviously draft it using 
legal language and all that. Sure, sure. And so you were, I asked you if you feel satisfied by, by what you've got in the end now. So again, a two-part answer. One is that it's satisfying that something, uh, that a FOIA process can, can yield something other than frustration. And more importantly, that it yields something that has real kind of resonance and substance and on a story that lots of people are paying attention to. And, and that's very competitive, you know, journalistically speaking, but also really relevant in the larger context of, you know, Russia and weird Russians turning up dead in weird circumstances and weird places around the world. The second answer to your question, is it satisfying? I mean, as people have, you know, if you're listening to this, then you may have already read the story and, and what what are what we found. There is no definitive smoking gun in the materials that says, yeah, he was bludgeoned to death by a baseball bat. He was poisoned, uh, blah, blah, blah. There's some intriguing, curious elements in the report that require some further investigation. And so, you know, yeah, it's satisfying to have that, but it's it's not, the, the process isn't over yet. But it does sound definitively that he wasn't bludgeoned with a baseball bat, right? Or, or poisoned for that matter. It sounds like he, his, he, his neck basically snapped, was snapped, or it's snapped on its own, or? Well, that's the thing, you know, you can look at some of the diagrams, some of the descriptions, and, and it's all very detailed. And I see you've, con- you, in the story, it's obvious, you consulted some, I don't know what the, their doctors or their autopsy experts or somebody that... Literature that's out there. I mean, the existing medical literature specific to this, I mean, we highlight this one bone in... Hyoid, or I don't know how you say yeah, it. Yeah, hy- hyoid or hyoid. hyoid. I'm not sure exactly how to say it either. That's in everyone's neck. And, you know, so in the course of, of trying to figure out what the autopsy was talking about, we, you know, we do what every good reporter does. We start Googling around and try to figure <laughs> out what uh-huh. the discussion is. And, you know, the scientific literature that we came across all all said it is extremely rare for this to happen unless it's asphyxiation or manual strangulation or something of that sort. So that suggests that somebody strangled him, right? Well, so this is the, uh, we can't say that definitively because as our story notes, there is a section in the documentation accompanying the report that discusses how sometimes this bone can be broken in the course of an autopsy being conducted. Do you have any idea if that would constitute a pretty major mistake, or is it something that just sort of happens sometimes? I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a forensic autopsy expert, and I don't have the knowledge. See, it sounds... I mean, the idea of breaking somebody's neck by accident when they're dead or whatever, I mean, that sounds kind of extreme. But again, yeah, I guess I don't... I'd have to consult a forensic expert to... I mean, I guess, think of it this way, you know, the old CPR training that we all got when we were growing up with the Red Cross and, you know, you do compressions on on somebody's chest on their rib cage. And I recall that we used to get trained that if you're not, if you don't break a couple ribs when you're doing those compressions, you're not doing the compressions properly. So people end up with broken ribs as they get transported to the hospital after having CPR performed on them. So... You know, that that's what made me think in this regard. Maybe it happens, uh, but I don't I can't say that for sure. I, I, I that, you know, uh, we don't know for sure. 
And why other people have reported on this before, but it's in your story as well. And I wanted to ask, why was the Secret Service ever involved in this? I don't quite understand why the Four Seasons would have called the Secret Service. Is this, is this just standard policy in D.C. when you've got a, a foreign person of interest doing crazy things that the Secret Service gets a call? The hotels just know to do this? Well, this is what we had been pushing to find out. And, and there had been some other reporting. You know, BuzzFeed has done some good reporting on this case. And the report that the, the files that we got basically give the final explanation that the definitive explanation that in the Four Seasons where Lesson was, there was some other dignitary or delegation staying that was aff- afforded Secret Service protection. So there was Secret Service presence in the hotel already protecting this other person or persons. And the security officer for the hotel, I can't remember what the description was, the narrative was, but either the security officer for the hotel contacted the, sec- the Secret Service guard in the hotel or it was vice versa. But the long, the long short of it is that the Secret Service was in the hotel, not because of Lesson. They were in the hotel for, for, for a different reason. And so then the alert went out just because, hey, you've got, and we know you're protecting somebody in this hotel. We happen to have a, a drunk Russian wandering the hallways. Yeah, without any pants on. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, I guess, you know, that would probably capture anyone's, get anyone's attention, whether you were Secret Service or otherwise. And, and you've got his relatives, surviving relatives, saying that he did have some pretty bad drinking habits and so I mean I guess personally do you, maybe you've already said all you can but do you have what's what's your sense do you think he did drink too much and fall down or does that not square up well his that he was a raging alcoholic was no secret to anyone uh, people who worked with him way back in the day like Gazprom media Russia today they all he was known for being a serious drinker, alcoholic, smoker, and in fact, some of the, maybe out of a historical curiosity, some of the photographs that we included in our story show uh, a party that he attended on the night that Putin was formally elected in 2000. Right. You've got these these, uh, stills from Vitaly Monsky's Putin's Witnesses film, and, uh, and it's kind of fun to see him, you know, from almost 20 years ago now. It is. And the film, I, I, you know, I'd say if you haven't seen it or, you know, people should definitely get a chance to see it when, when it fi- is formally released, because it really is a, a remarkable little snapshot of a point in time when we, you know, had we, the world had certain expectations about what was coming from the from the Putin presidency. And now look back 18 years ago. But to, to the question about, you know, his his drinking, so that so that was not a a secret to anybody who was close to him, his friends, his coworkers, and people who had paid attention to him. He had professed in one of his last interviews, and I can't remember exactly where I saw it, Russian or Western press. He had professed to have started to clean up his life, uh, that is, to drink less and smoke less. Um, now I don't I don't know how much credence to give give those comments, but. We do have the autopsy report and the documentation do discuss his the comments from his son saying that he was known to go on these epic benders when he went on 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 business travel. So, and the, and there's no reason to discount. I mean, I think the literature that we've seen from the police report, the FBI report, and now 
this city autopsy uh, collected, I pretty definitively says, you know, he was he was definitely stumbling around drunk for a good period of the last 48 to 72 hours that he was that he was around, that he was alive. Is there any mention of his blood alcohol level in the documents that you recovered? There is, and, and I actually uh, sent out a little snapshot of a tweet uh, uh, by my Twitter account today with, with the alcohol levels. I can't tell you for sure whether they show what what they show. I'd have to go... We haven't had time to actually look at the scientific evidence of what constitutes complete another, you know, shit-faced state of mind, but but that's in there. Oh, and also it would depend on his size too and all that, right? I mean... I guess, yeah, and, and it doesn't... I, I seem to recall it doesn't indicate over what period, although then there's the anecdotal descriptions of, of what he had been trying to drink and uh, and when he was trying to drink and, and that he cleaned out the minibar. But he he definitely had, he had alcohol in his system, it's fair to say. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a, without question. And But the toxicology report also does not answer the question, was there other stuff in the, in the system? There's a good chunk of the material that is redacted. Why would they redact... You know what else is in his system? I don't quite understand. Well, I don't. I'm not sure. I could speculate, um, you know, but I can't. I can't say for sure right now. Part of our fight with the city over what to release came down to what was exempt under FOIA laws. What could be withheld from public view, and this is what we argued over in the court hearing last month. You know, the city and the city lawyers are saying, well. Uh, if we have documents talking about law enforcement methods and means, we don't have to release that. We don't have to release photographs of the of the body because that might upset the family, and some other uh, some other shit. I, I can't remember what, but you know, our my hunch is that there's other material like law law enforcement investigative material in there that they just redacted because they because they didn't want it to get out, and that may hold a clue to what else was going on at the time. And is that generally, those are the grounds they use to redact or to deny this, to stop the publication of this in the first place, is the notion, the the argument that these are police secrets, and it has nothing to do with geopolitics or anything like that, or national security? Is that is that generally the, the line of reasoning? I've become more of an expert on, on the, the nuances of FOIA law than I, than I had been before. There's like a series of exemptions that are written down in the D.C. FOIA law regulations, and they mirror the overall federal regulations that are applicable to federal agencies. And, you know, there's I can't remember how many exemptions there are, but law enforcement privilege is one of them. Um, personal privacy of the family is one of them. Uh, I think national security is one of them. Uh, you don't know if they cited this or that one in this. You know what they said in oral arguments, I guess, right, in court. But Yeah, and, and there was a, you know, what worked in our favor is that when we made the FOIA request, the city denied it. The city said, well, we have 150 separate records that are relevant to your request, and we're exempting all of them from release. And the judge said, you know, basically, what the hell? You can't exempt everything from release. Why? Why is this email exempt? Why is this other file released? And so the judge called the city out on that issue and said, well, you can release quite a lot of that 
this material. So how many of the 150? I'd have to, pieces? you know, I, uh, my lawyer, our lawyer was asking last night what the, what the tally was. And I haven't, I haven't had time to go back and check the list of evidence to say, you know, we got, do you have a sense of like, I half think or? definitely more than half, probably three quarters, but I, I'd have to go back and check each evidence number to figure out what was what was released yeah it's pretty it's pretty wild wild case <laughs> you know it again it's as 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 you know and it, it's it comes at a crazy sort of time for russian policy and, and u.s hysteria or exaggerated reactions to everything that russia is doing in the world and so there's a lot of conspiracy mongering that is that's going on these days and and it'd be nice to have some sort of definitive yeah, he was whacked. No, he got drunk and fell down, you know. Do you feel this pushes the needle in either direction even a little bit or is it still squarely where it was before all this? Um, I would say it pushes the needle towards the foul play explanation, but uh, I'm you know, I don't want to I don't think we're there yet, at least in our reporting to say he was definitively whacked. Although I should say, you know, in in the reporting that that I've done over the past over two years since the case happened, I've definitely picked up plenty of people looking at me with raised eyebrows and, you know, pursed lips indicating that, you know, don't don't stop digging at the story. This is not the end, obviously. There's more investigative reporting to be done. Where where do you go from here, do you think? Well, uh, I think without without tipping off our competitors, sure. Okay, fair enough. Right. I mean, getting a definitive uh, scientific assessment of of what this all says is the first step. And you know, and we also uh, the other FOIA requests that we have pending, and that other people have pending as well. Those are still those are still out there. And you know, and and the way that reporting goes, you know, you you publish a story of this size and things jog free and, and, you know, you beat the bush and, and things pop up that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And you start getting these random notes from people saying, Hey, this is interesting. Have you looked here or you looked there? So I don't know. There, I, there, I suspect there'll be other stuff that comes up that we haven't anticipated. Are the other FOIA requests for different materials? Uh, different materials with different agencies. Cause Buzzfeed is working the FBI angle is that right, or the BuzzFeed? And we um, we were working the FBI angle as well, and and uh, they, I believe it was their request that prompted the FBI to dump that report last year. How does what you just got compare to what they got a year ago? They did not get the autopsy. We the autopsy report was only, I mean, it was obtained by us exclusively. So what did they get? The FBI report that was released again. I can't remember when it was. You know, it fleshed out the narrative of the drunken bender, the walking around in his underwear. It talked about the video footage from the hotel, security cameras. That's actually an area that hasn't been fully explained, that there's a gap in the hotel security footage that in the period of time when Lesson was last seen alive in his hotel room and when his body was finally found on late on the morning of November 5th. And there's nothing like a missing gap in a videotape or an audio tape to set people's conspiracy mongering uh, alight. So that, that's, that's actually a place that needs to be really explored further. So this is a very impressive investigative report, and I'm curious, as somebody who doesn't do that 
kind of work, but is frequently able to enjoy it because of people like you. What exactly goes into putting something like this together? It definitely is. I mean, the whole process is a reminder of, again, the frustrations that go into the FOIA filings and the lawsuits and, and tracking down paperwork. And, you know, as I said earlier, how that more often than not, that just leads to frustration. But if you stick with it enough, then you occasionally do end up with something of real substance and resonance and, and, and importance. And, you know, there's this pressure out there that, that reporting just sort of happens in a vacuum with reporters running around and automatically getting access to the materials and exclusive documents and tips. And, and But the reality is that so much good investigative reporting requires months and months and years and years of just digging and, and working sources and cross-checking corporate registries and court filings and FOIA documents. And that often doesn't get appreciated, I think, by readers who just assume that a story can materialize out of thin air. So it's for good investigative reporters who know how to do this stuff, it's, it's definitely worth appreciating how much effort and how much time and persistence it's, is required. Do you have any specific advice to people anticipating to do this sort of thing in their own careers, or they have a story that they feel like they should pursue the FOIA route on? I mean, you know, knowing FOIA procedure and law and, and processes is essential, be it state or on the state or the federal level. I, you know, I think where this is sort of interesting is that, you know, while the bulk of the FOIA requests were related to this case, we're going through to federal agencies like Justice and FBI and state and I don't know who else, White House maybe. Sometimes a targeted request that focuses on a smaller I mean the, the DC office of the chief medical examiner is not a small office, but it's not it was kind of a strategic decision that we made to go after the local city office to get these documents rather than fighting with high-powered lawyers at Justice or FBI who were much better equipped to fend off these requests. On a related note, the, the, the ability to dig through, again, corporate registries, court filings, Nexus business records, uh, and, you know, you should see my desk at work. It's just piled high with papers of all sorts and and you can barely see my keyboard and and that's in addition to destroying lots of trees it's indicative of just to how much how much effort you put in and how much you get out and you're not entirely sure what you have but you just keep accumulating material and and the most important thing is to be organized about it, to know that if you see the reference to something in the Panama Papers which links to a shell company that was registered in Delaware that was sued in you know federal court in 2006 that's tied to you know a, a Prigozhin company then you know you're onto something so I wish I was better organized to, to keep these all these threads straight. So in addition to being persistent, just be organized, unlike me. That's my interview with Mike Eckel, a senior correspondent for RFRL based in Washington, D.C. If you haven't already read the article he wrote with Carl Schreck, the one that I've been talking about with him for the last, I don't know, so many minutes, you can find a hyperlink in the description of today's episode. I'll also include links to Mike's author page at RFERL and his Twitter account. 
If you enjoyed today's show, please consider heading over to patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can contribute to the Russia Guys production costs. Thanks to everyone already pitching in, and I invite all listeners to reach out with feedback on Twitter if you've got anything you'd like to share with me. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Дайте, что ли, карты в руки Погадать на короля Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля Погадать на короля Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля Эх-па! Завтра дальняя дорога Выпадает королю У него деньжонок много А я денежки люблю Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля Yeah.